Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Ohio State Supreme Court Justice Michael Donnelly. He took office in January 2019, and prior to joining the court, Justice Donnelly served as a judge on the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas General Division for 14 years from 2005 until 2018. Prior to that, Justice Donnelly was an assistant Cuyahoga County prosecutor from 1992 until 1997. He also practiced civil litigation for seven, for seven years, representing plaintiffs and injured workers in asbestos litigation, personal injury lawsuits, and workers' compensation claims. And today, Justice Donnelly and I will be talking about an issue that's very important to him, and I think that should be very important to everyone, and that is transparency and reform in the criminal justice process. Uh, Justice Donnelly, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. So, as I said, today we're going to be talking about uh, the criminal justice process, transparency, really, and specifically as this relates to plea bargains and sentencing. Uh, But I thought before we did that, maybe it would be helpful for listeners to get a sense of kind of what it is exactly that a justice on the Ohio Supreme Court does. Sure. Uh, Well, in 2018, I was elected uh, Associate Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, and we're generally known as the Court of Last Resort in the state of Ohio. I sit as one of seven elected justices, and we serve for six years terms before we have to uh, submit ourselves for uh, re-election for the public. Um, The judiciary, as I'm sure most of your listeners understand, is the branch of government that resolves disputes. And disputes, the the vast majority of disputes are going to be resolved in our trial courts. In Ohio, we call the felony court uh, the court of common... Court of Common Pleas, and we they handle serious felony uh, charges on the criminal end and uh, serious uh, civil disputes as well. And we also have our municipal courts that uh, resolve a vast majority of, of uh, misdemeanor uh, type charges and uh, smaller uh, disputes on the civil end. So uh, that's generally where uh, a party who is uh, either a plaintiff or a defendant, or the state of Ohio as the uh, in a criminal case is bringing charges, and uh, the case is going to be initially resolved there. If you res- if you receive an adverse uh, ruling uh, at the trial court level, you have the ability to appeal your decision to one of the twelve districts of court of appeals that exist in the state of Ohio to have your case reviewed to determine whether there was any error that occurred and uh, make make the pitch that the case should be reversed and sent back to the trial court. If you receive an adverse ruling in one of those appellate courts, then you have the opportunity to petition, just like you would at the U.S. Supreme Court, to petition to have your case reviewed by the Ohio Supreme Court. And we, uh, unlike the appellate courts below us, we have discretion in which cases that we bring in for the most part. And uh, with a few exceptions, death penalty cases get directly appealed to our, to our court. But, uh, but in the vast majority of cases, we are voting. Um, and our criteria 
that we apply is the dispute a matter of great public importance or does it involve an alleged violation of the Ohio Constitution or the federal Constitution? That's what we vote on. And if you receive uh, four of the seven uh, justices' votes or more, then the case will be accepted for review. Uh, if you don't receive that, then generally the decision you receive at the appeal court stands. But if we take a case in and we decide it, uh, the holding in that particular case will become the law for the state of Ohio, and the lower courts will be bound to follow that. So it's a very important court, and I'm very privileged to, to be there as part of the justices who review these cases, evaluate these cases. And also, I have an opportunity to have more influence than I did when I was a trial court judge to work on matters that are important to me, and that's criminal justice reform and civil civil justice reform as well. And I should point out to listeners that this isn't just an Ohio thing in the sense that, I mean, the vast majority of all cases are at the state level. While we, the federal cases get a lot of attention, most of the vast, uh, most of the criminal justice system, that, that all happens at the state level. And so issues about criminal justice reform, even though the focus oftentimes we hear about is federal legislation, Really, the, the states are where we would expect to see or where we would hope to see maybe the most consequential reforms happening. That's correct. There's, there's significant differences between the way the federal courts operate and the state courts, particularly when we're going to talk about this today on um, how the judges involve themselves in the plea bargaining process in the state system, as opposed to the federal system where the judges don't really get involved the way they do uh, in the plea bargaining process right. in the state court. Yeah, I think we should jump right into that because uh, very recently you had an article published in the Ohio State Journal of Criminal Law, which called Truth or Consequences, Making the Case for Transparency and Reform in the Plea Negotiation Process. And I'll put a link there in the show notes, folks. And uh, normally you'd say, oh, law journal article, this horrible jargon-filled thing. But no, this is totally the opposite of that it was really a fascinating and a pleasure to read. And so I think it's definitely worth your time. And in that article, you you mentioned a line from former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. I thought it was really interesting. He says of plea bargaining that it is not some adjunct to the criminal justice system. It is the criminal justice system. Uh, what did Justice Kennedy mean by that? I think he was pointing out uh, the reality of what all People who work within the system, judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys all know, and that is that the vast majority of cases are not resolved, as you see on TV, by uh, proceeding to trial where the state uh, goes before a jury and proves the truth of the charges beyond reasonable doubt. The vast majority of cases in our system, I'm talking nearly 97%, uh, are resolved through negotiated a plea bargain. So if you look back, as I say in the article, and thank you for your kind words as the article, I did intend, even though it's in an academic journal published uh, at Ohio State, I'm very grateful to them. I did write it uh, with the intent that it would speak to law students who have no concept of what goes into the plea negotiation process and the general public that I believe that we serve uh, deserves to, uh, to understand how the process uh, works. Uh, so that was my intended audience, and uh, I wanted to kind of uh, 
uh, lift the shroud of of secrecy that kind of, uh, in my opinion, uh, covers this very uh, often secretive process. And can you talk a little bit about how, I, I mean, I know there are a lot of very uh, differences from case to case, certainly, but uh, I would imagine you can maybe make some generalizations about how typically this tends to play out, this negotiation. Sure. Well, just for an example, in Cuyahoga County, where I work, Cleveland, Ohio, on average, there used to be about 10,000 felony indictments per year that came out of the grand jury. Uh, so that's an accusation of uh, criminal conduct being made by the state. And the first stage in every criminal case occurs at the accused uh, arraignment hearing, uh, where that uh, person is going to be responsible for answering that accusation, either through a not guilty plea or a guilty plea. And 99.9% of the time, as everyone who works in the system knows, that's going to start with a not guilty plea, a denial to uh, the truth of the charges. And that's there's good reason for that. Uh, that's generally the time uh, when a lawyer, if uh, the accused is fortunate enough to have the resources to hire their own lawyer, if they don't, then they will have either a public defender or assigned defense counsel uh, applied to represent them at that stage. And they have not seen any of the evidence that supports these charges. So they're going to advise their client to enter a plea of not guilty. Uh, a bond is going to be set at that stage of the proceedings. And then the case is going to be randomly assigned to one of the judges that works in that jurisdiction. Uh, and once that takes place, then the way every single trial court judge moves their docket towards resolution of these disputes is they provide every case with a firm trial date. And that's what move, that's the, the, the uh, fuel, so to speak, that moves the system along. Right. Because once a trial date is set, parties, the accuser, the state of the government, state of Ohio, has the burden of getting, preparing their case and sharing all the information we have open discovery in, in the state of Ohio. We did not have that uh, always where the prosecutor is required to turn over everything uh, in their file. I didn't, as a young prosecutor, I was not required to do that wow. until uh, 2005. Uh, we had, uh, around that period, changed our rules. And now the prosecutor is required to turn over all the evidence that supports these charges, witness statements, police reports, videotapes, whatever they intend to use should the matter go to trial, needs to be turned over. And that includes what we call Brady material. Any uh, evidence that is exculpatory doesn't fit in line with the theory of guilt that they plan to present. They have to turn that over to the defense for their evaluation and uh, consideration. And the defense has to prepare as well. Both parties know that on that trial date, the judge is going to accept, uh, is going to expect one of three things to happen. Either the prosecutor is going to go forward, uh, we're going to call up a jury, and they're going to be held to their burden of proving the truth of those charges beyond reasonable doubt. Or um, they are going; the court is going to dismiss the charge charges if they have no good reason why they're not prepared to go forward. That's the power of the court to move the docket. Or they, the parties, are going to present to the court what is known as a negotiated plea agreement, governed by our criminal rules, Criminal Rule Eleven, uh, when the the parties have uh, negotiated a contract, so to speak, that completely resolves 
the, the dispute. So that's an overview about every case, no matter how serious the case is, murder case, rape case, all the way down to low-level drug deal, dealing. That is the process by which these charges um, get resolved. And 97% of the cases, uh, it's a negotiated plea agreement. And that negotiation, that's typically, right, an, an informal not on the record process and and based on my reading of of your article you think that there's there's a problem or some problems with doing things that way right yes you know uh, when i started as a judge in 2005 i i began to study the plea negotiation process from a new perspective now i was no longer an advocate as i started my career as a prosecutor i was a neutral in the process and when I became a judge, um, I uh, engaged in the process of plea negotiation the same way I learned as a prosecutor and a, in a manner that I never really questioned until I was in this new role. You know, pleas often uh, get negotiated in private between the prosecutor and the defense counsel. Uh, however, as I mentioned at the start of the show, in Ohio, uh, the judges get involved in the plea bargaining process because once a tentative plea agreement has been negotiated, there's a, the next step is that you have to go before the particular judge where the case is assigned and see if they will accept the, uh, the plea agreement as negotiated. And in my article, I, I describe what I, I believe is a systemic flaw, in the way the system operates, is in, is in the fact that there is very little guidance that um, guides trial court judges on whether to accept a plea agreement or uh, reject the plea, plea agreement. They have huge amounts of discretion in this regard. Uh, there's very few cases where uh, judges who have rejected plea agreement uh, and that issue has been appealed to the, the appellate courts, uh, they apply on what's known as an abuse of discretion. You, Two out of three judges would have to agree that the judge abused their discretion in refusing a plea agreement. A very high standard, and the appellate courts are very deferential to trial courts' decisions in this regard. And as a result, um, the there among the hundreds and hundreds of common pleas trial court judges, and I was one included, there are different philosophies that exist that I think we need to talk about and the public needs to be aware of because. The fact that they exist, in my opinion, results to a lot of disparate treatment from courtroom to courtroom. And just for an example, I, and during my 14 years, I always viewed myself as the neutral in the, in the process of plea bargaining. So when parties came to me and presented it, what was an arm's length negotiated transaction, what I mean by that is both sides were zealously representing their their clients. There was no type of sweetheart deal taking place. Um, and they presented a case and it, oftentimes they would present agreed sentences. We 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 think the appropriate sentence here is agreed probation. We think that it should be an agreed minimum prison sentence. This is why. And um, I always uh, was amenable to those types of um, agreements because I uh, I viewed myself as a neutral. The parties knew more about the facts of the case than I did, the procedural hurdles they were facing should the matter go to trial. So I always accepted that. And likewise, um, I was granted a lot of discretion in sentencing 
Uh, for 14 years, I had plenty of opportunities to go above that is sentenced someone more severely um, than the prosecutor was asking for. And in 14 years, I never did that. I never saw why any guidance in the law that would direct me to do that. But some of my former colleagues on the trial court, they 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 possess different philosophies. They think sentencing is totally within their realm, and they will let the parties know that they uh, they retain the discretion to go above even what the prosecutor uh, is sentencing someone to. So a lot of these uh, these uh, negotiations take place in judges' chambers outside of the presence of court reporter or the press or the public or the people involved in the case. And so practitioners in the state of Ohio have to navigate uh, among all these different philosophies that exist of judges on the trial bench. Some judges will, for instance, make representations off the record about what they're inclined to do at sentencing. But they don't. There's unwritten rules that exist in these judges' courtrooms that even though they're making these representations, that no one is to say anything on the record until the actual sentencing date. So in these judges' courtrooms, what, what takes place, believe it or not, is the defense lawyer has to go out and say, great news. Uh, I just had a discussion in the back room, and um, we got you a minimum sentence. We're going to go in, and we're going to do a plea hearing right now. However, when the judge asks you the question, has anybody made any representations to you about what sentence you would receive? You, your answer should be no. And that's often confusing to the client. Well, what do you mean? They said that I get a minimum sentence. And, but they don't want this being said uh, until after the pre-sentence report. And you have to you know, hope that the judge remembers that representation and um, basically doesn't uh, go back on that promise that was made in the backroom discussion. So that's one different form of uh, judicial philosophy. That On the other end of the spectrum, exists judges who won't tell you what they're inclined to do with percent. So you have this negotiated benefit, uh, well, it's supposed to be a benefit where the state is receiving re uh, a resolution to the case without going through trial and using the resources that they need. The defendant is getting a resolution and what the benefit that they are seeking is some degree of leniency and the consequences that are gonna take place should they enter this plea. And in these judges' courtrooms where they won't make that representation, it's my argument that they're not getting so much a negotiated benefit. They're getting the hope of a negotiated benefit, and they got a hope at sentencing that that takes place. But sometimes people who enter these plea agreements, I call this sentencing by ambush, where the prosecutor doesn't make any representation about what they intend to advocate for. They drop half the charges in exchange for pleas to other charges. And then the defendant shows up at sentencing not completely unaware of what uh, their consequences are going to be. Some, some defendants show up thinking they're going to get either probation or a minimum sentence, and they walk and they receive sometimes decades-long sentences at, at sentencing, and they walk out of the courtroom shell-shocked uh, and questioning what, what benefit they gained from entering the plea agreement um, in the first place. Wow. So we have all these different areas, and, and you can see how that, when, when these different philosophies operate, you're going to have disparate treatment of individuals for the same crimes or similarly situated crimes from courtroom to courtroom because of these philosophies 
and the fact that we've never had a, a discussion as a profession on uh, on what the judge's role should be in the process. Wow. Yeah, that that, that really surprised me because I always just assumed that once that decision was made, it was just the formality for it to happen in open court. And so realizing that just really uh, surprised me, uh, dismayed me also. And, you know, another thing that kind of I don't surprise me so much, but uh, the existence of what you call legal fictions, I, I would think or I think a lot of people might think that one thing that a judge wouldn't allow is for somebody to to plead guilty to something that they actually didn't do and that everyone knows that they didn't do, because that would seem to subvert the whole idea of the justice system. You could argue that at least, but that's not really the case, is it? Uh, that's correct. The, the process of resolving cases through legal fictions, which are more commonly understood by your listeners as lies, <laughs> uh, takes place um, more frequently uh, than one would expect. And uh, it involves a process that um, the, the parties allow the defendant to resolve a case with by pleading guilty to a charge that in no way resembles the original charges uh, that uh, were originally initiated against them. And, and um, we tried to change this practice. This is a practice that's outlawed, actually, in the federal system. They require what's known as a factual basis for every charge. There have to be facts that, if true, support what the defendant's about to admit to to resolve the case. And a number of states are moving in that direction. In 2016, before I joined the court, I was involved in, with an effort that, that was endorsed by the Ohio Judicial Conference to change that uh, uh, Rule 11. That would require that uh, every plea have a factual basis. And I had this policy for uh, over a decade in my room. I, I let the parties know that I would never accept a plea that didn't have facts that, if true, would support what the defendant would uh, be pleading to. It's, it's contrary to the tenets of our justice system that we try to achieve in every case, and that's truth. And integrity of the process. It's not fair to the accused, and it's not fair to if the case involves a victim, the alleged victim in the case. So we tried to change that, but there were a lot of uh, opposition from uh, individuals, even though we had a lot of support uh, from uh, ethics professors across the, the nation, editorial boards. There was a lot of internal pressure, I think, with the court, and we ultimately rejected that. And there's a Columbus Dispatch uh, article you can Google, and the headline reads, Ohio Supreme Court rejects truth in sentencing. I think it's not unfortunate. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we will uh, address this problem that this, because um, we're doing in backroom discussions, we're a lot allowing these pleas, uh, and, and they reflect resolutions that a jury could never find if they were considering the case. And we're putting false information into into the system. And the public, in my opinion, has a right to believe that the outcomes of our criminal justice system are based in truth and based in fact. And um, oftentimes that that's not taking place in a lot of cases. It seems to me that there might be a, a fairly 
big incentive for prosecutors to do this, right? Because if you have a better conviction record, well, that makes you look better potentially for promotion and other things like that. And so maybe there might be some some problems with an incentive that pushes prosecutors to do and agree to things like this. Yes, prosecutors are under, I think, a lot of pressure because of the volume of cases that they're dealing with especially in a, in a major jurisdiction like Cleveland, to resolve cases short of going to trial. Not every case uh, can proceed to trial. We just don't have the resources to it. Nor if the, the major facts are not disputed, uh, the trial really becomes uh, unnecessary. But, but um, you're right. I mean, I think prosecutors are elected officials just like judges are in the state of Ohio. And they want to demonstrate that charges they bring ultimately result in a in a conviction, um, and I think that looks good when you, when you're running. But I think also public perception of the prosecutor's role is changing. I I believe um, that you know, throughout the country, uh, jurisdictions are electing what are being referred to as progressive prosecutors who. Um, uh, really believe in the notion that prosecutors, their role is not necessarily to seek a conviction in every case. Their role is to seek justice. And if they don't believe that uh, the evidence that they have, uh, if they can't form a good faith belief in the guilt of who's, uh, uh, who's been accused, then I think we need to have rules in place that give prosecutors the fortitude to dismiss cases um, and not not be afraid of having that, the fact that they dismiss cases that don't meet that high standard, that they don't feel confident they can go into court and prove beyond a reasonable doubt, dismiss cases. Um, or if you're going to plead the cases, you have to plead them to what I, I explained in my paper, what, what are known as lesser included offenses. Um, all serious crimes, the legislature have given judges and prosecutors and defense lawyers tools where you can where you can plead cases down uh, to what are known as lesser included offenses. They carry less penalties, but they still retain that factual basis because if they the defendant in fact in truth committed the more serious charge, then they also committed the lesser included offense. I'll give you an example of that: the charge of rape. Many of I've tried many rape cases and. Uh, presided over many rape cases. Uh, if pro- those cases can, can be very challenging for prosecutors because sometimes it, it, it boils down to one person word against the others, and they um, they can plead the charge down to a, a crime known as gross sexual imposition. It still retains a factual basis because if in truth they committed the more serious charge, they also in fact committed that lesser included offense, and so the defendant gets a benefit of whatever leniency that lesser included offense um, will provide in the sentence. Um, and the prosecutor is able to get closure by resolving the case uh, and getting some level of accountability for the victim in, in the case as well. Now, you're not just talking about this as a sort of theoretician. You actually, and I really like this, the fact that when you were a trial court judge, you actually changed some procedures, I think, in a pretty significant way 
in your court to kind of address some of the issues that you've, you that you saw. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you did in as a trial court judge. Sure. Um, I describe this in my article as probably the biggest epiphany of my legal career. When I started to study the way uh, plea bargains were being negotiated and sentences were often being finalized uh, back in my chamber during my first term of office, I began to question uh, the ethical nature of this because, uh, you know, we're talking about something that if accepted by the court is going to most likely profoundly affect the accused life in certain ways. They may be going to prison for a certain amount of years uh, and uh, or they're going to have restrictions placed for a number of years on their behavior. So it's profoundly affecting the life of the accused. And also, if not all criminal cases involve cases that involve victims, but a certain, certainly a, a significant do, if there's a victim in the case, they are being left out of the, uh, the uh, conversation. So um, one day I, I, I came to the conclusion that no one should ever say anything back in chambers off the record, including the judge, including myself. Uh, that you wouldn't repeat verbatim. So one one day I told my bailiff, uh, I want to change the process in which I engage uh, with the attorneys. And we can have the same discussions that we've been having back here, but we're going to just do them out in the courtroom with the court reporter out in open court. Wow. And uh, I did that. I'll never forget the day I started. The revelation to me, because when you put people on the record, you focus on the merits of the case or the lack of merits. Uh, attorneys, judges don't w- want to embellish or uh, tell falsehood when you're placed on the record think, or represent facts that can't be supported. And um, no one wants to appear coercive or threatening. And there's a lot of coercion that takes place in the plea bargaining process that people don't know about um, due to you know, the various tools that the legislature has provided prosecutors and courts uh, through legislation that uh, add a bit of coercion, not a bit, significant coercion um, uh, to the process. And so I started, uh, we had all our discussions on the record. uh, And if the parties wanted to delve into sentencing, I would first ask what the state was uh, recommending plan to advocate for. I really believe in a fair system. The defendant's going to enter a a negotiated plea agreement. They have the right to know at that negotiated plea agreement what position the prosecutor is going to take 30 days down the road at sentence. They shouldn't be surprised by that. If the prosecutor is going to be advocating for a severe prison sentence, they should know that if they're entering a plea agreement at that particular point. So I always made it a process of asking the prosecutor, what do you intend to advocate for? Sometimes they'd say, you know, we're going to leave it to your sound discretion, Judge, or Judge, we have no objection to probation here. And then I would turn to the defense lawyer and I would say, what are you going to be advocating for at the sentencing hearing? And they'd say, we're going to be advocating for community control, what we call probation in Ohio. And I'd say, well, do the law and the facts support that? And they would make the argument. They'd say, yes, you'd see, you just saw that the felony of the first degree was just reduced to a felony of the fourth degree or fifth degree. It's got a, it has a legal presumption for probation. This is a, my client is working. If you were to send him to prison, which you is well within your discretion, it would 
totally destabilize their lives. Uh, they would lose their job and their ability to support their family and the ability to make restitution to the victim in this case. And um, we believe that uh, he can be all the goals of our sentencing laws, which are contained in Ohio Revised Code 29, 2911 and 2929-12, which are the cornerstones of our sentencing scheme in Ohio, where judges are supposed to be thinking about in every sentence, what is it going to take to adequately punish the, the offender, set them on a course towards rehabilitation, uh, provide protection to uh, safety to the community using the least amount of our limited resources possible to do that. That's what should be going through every trial court judge's sentence, no matter what it is, uh, when they come to that uh, that conclusion. And uh, yeah, the process of doing that on the record provides, I think, um, a means where everybody involved in the case can, can have confidence that everybody's doing their job right, that transparency where the public is able to discern that the process is, is operating correctly. And, and how common uh, is that sort of uh, trans- that level of transparency uh, in your view and your experience, the sort of thing you did? I, I don't think there was any, um, anyone else that <laughs> did it much on the record. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of judges will do this. They will have the, the negotiation on record and they, I think they feel the same type of uh, uncomfortable feeling that I had. And so a lot of judges will say, will reiterate um, what, what was just said in the back room for the defendant. They'll say, we just had a discussion and this was what represented, what was represented, and this is what I represented. And I just, I just, I took that step out of the equation. I said, why, why do, why go through that uh, from an efficiency point of view? Why not just do every, Right. Everything on the record. So, so that 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 way, um, if I make a representation as to what sentence I'm going to impose, what I would often say is, well, let's get a let's get a pre-sentence report investigation from the probation department. If everything that was represented here today is correct, this is what I'm prepared to do at sentencing. And then you'd kind of see the defendant. Um, uh, you, you'd sense a sense of relief that I made that representation on the record. Because once I did that, as long as everything that was represented was truthful and was supported by the facts in that investigation that was going to take place, then I was held accountable as the judge. If I was having a bad day, thirty days down, or you know, yeah. uh, you know, for what, some reason I'm in, I'm in a bad mood, and I don't get to go back on the promise that I made, which actually worked as an inducement towards the accused. And um, and that that way it's more transparent and it provides public confidence uh, that the system's working correctly. Now, I think what some people might say is, yeah, transparency is great, but if you make a system thoroughly and totally transparent, uh, it makes it harder to, you might say, grease the wheels, I guess. You have a little less flexibility, and and it's good to have the opportunity to apply that, use the term in the article, rough justice if the alternative is potentially, you know, no justice at all. I was wondering which, what you thought about that, because you certainly have heard that objection. Oh, yeah. I, it, you know, um when we tried to propose the rule that we did, there was some very thoughtful insight, particularly from the criminal defense bar that was worried about moving in this direction. And, um, you know, they'll say, we need, 
because of the laws that, that exist, what they often describe as draconian laws that tie judges and prosecutors and defense lawyers' hands when they try to negotiate what they believe would be a just resolution, that they need that flexibility and creative, I think they call it creative. But uh, when, I, when, they result, when they result in legal fictions, I don't think it's doing anybody system any good. I don't think it's fair to the accused. If they are truly not guilty of what they are charged with, then they're being offered oftentimes something that is so coercive um, that even if you're innocent, uh, very well-known judge uh, that I've become friends with over the years, Judge Jed Rakoff uh, from New York, who has uh, written many articles on plea bargaining and other aspects. You know, he wrote a great article that was published in the New York Review of Books called Why the Innocent Plead Guilty. And you can see in some of these pleas that result in legal fiction that, that the parties rationalize in their own mind they're, they're forming some a level of, of justice because you're going to get control over the defendant, even though he's pleading to something and admitted, admitting to something that is uh, totally uh, just not true and everybody in the room knows it. Um, you question why people would ever think of this resolution justice. It's not justice for the victim. Um, if, if the, and it's not justice for the accused. What, you know, the truth is the truth. Either the victim is telling the truth or they're not. And, uh, and the defendant who's representing that they're not guilty is either uh, not guilty or they are. You know, yeah. so the, the truth is that our, the system is designed to get at least some level of accountability. And that's what we look for uh, in our, our justice resolutions. And people rely on the outcome of the criminal justice system for a variety of uh, things that we need to protect the integrity of these resolutions. Uh, employers in our community uh, do background checks on people that they investigate. And so they want to know that if they see uh, an offense, uh, that there are facts that support that offense. They don't want it to be, they don't want to find out later that it was some legal uh, legal fiction that they swept the case under the, the rug. Police doing their investigation need to know about someone's truthful criminal uh, record. Sentencing judges in the future, one of the most important things I looked at when I made a, a very important sentencing decision was what was the individual's past criminal record? And I would use that to make a very important decision. And oftentimes it meant the difference between incarceration and, uh, and probation. So you, there's all sorts of policy reasons that we need, uh, we need to believe that uh, these, um, these outcomes uh, reflect the truth right. and some level of accountability for the criminal conduct that actually occurred. Well, you know, I couldn't help uh, in, in reading this and thinking about this issue a lot more. Think of the, for instance, without getting into the details of the case, the, the the Michael Flynn situation, right, where, you know, uh, where people saying, well, you know, he said he was guilty in open court twice. And so either then either he is or he perjured himself. And and I, with, again, without getting into the Flynn case itself, you can make the argument, well, oftentimes it's not as simple as that there's all this other stuff going on that, that sort of you've been talking about this this whole time. Yeah, I mean, that, that case is, has caused quite a bit of public con uh, controversy for a variety of, of issues because 
you know, over the course of 14 years, I had many uh, requests to vacate pleas, but they often came from defendants who right. said, you know, they didn't believe that they, they thought they were coerced into the plea agreement and they wanted to exercise their trial rights. And we'd have hearings on that very rarely. Um, would you ever get a motion to vacate a plea from the government? Yeah. And I think that's why people are calling for a hearing. Uh, you know, why did someone plead guilty and why is the, uh, the government taking this unusual step in the Flynn case to uh, have those charges vacated when there's been certainly uh, defendants across this country that didn't have the uh, resources that he did in defending him uh, that have led to similar cases, and there's been no, um, no, uh, no motion from the, the government to to vacate those charges, and, and I think that's very troubling, especially especially to people that work in the, the federal system. And the Flynn case is a great uh, example of, um, you know, what what I've talked about in my article about the criminal sentencing database. Uh, and why why we need to have every single uh, sentencing and what sentence uh, is imposed in every single case needs to be collected, including all the data points regarding that particular conviction, including the race of the individual, the person's background. Um, it's just absolutely necessary to advance our system and make it a, a more fair system. Because and that Flynn case is in a great example of that. You know when he. Uh, well, I'm thinking. Of, I'm sorry. I'm mistaking it about the Manafort case. Right. So we can talk about that. that. But, you know, the Flynn case um, is uh, that that brings up uh, you know transparency, and uh, I you know what I would do if I were the trial court judge in that case, I would hold a hearing and I would hold the government uh, accountable to provide reasons on the record why they are doing what they are doing. Right. So that the public can uh, have confidence that no one's getting any type of special treatment. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you you mentioned that database, the database thing. I got to say, I was when I read that, I thought, wait a second. You mean there's not already a database where you can look up the sentence for you know every sort of crime and get you know averages and 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 st- I just that seems to me to be the most sort of straightforward, obvious thing that every state and the federal government would have and the fact that there that 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 isn't the case really just stunned me yeah you know um we have been clamoring ever since the sentencing laws that we currently operate in ohio they contemplated that we as the judiciary would eventually collect this information so it would be useful to judges prosecutors and defense lawyers uh, especially because the laws require uh, trial court judges to um, issue uh, similar sentences for similarly situated defendants. But there is really no resource, um, uh, centralized resource, where you can collect that information statewide. Um, you, lawyers have, on occasion in certain jurisdictions, been able to go into do their own research, but it's, it's often so time-consuming, so laborious, that uh, defense lawyers in, in the state of Ohio, you just do not have the ability, based on the volume of cases, to do that. And that's just wrong. Right. In, um, in 2002, a task force studying um, racial disparity uh, in outcomes of our system 
system called exactly for what we're advocating for right now, the creation of a centralized database. And uh, they put together a great report and uh, it just uh, it went into a file somewhere and gathered dust and we, we never, never followed through on the uh, implementation of collecting this data, which is so important. I think the recent events that have taken a case across the country um, has provided that momentum because there's a there's a vast portion of our population that don't have don't possess the confidence in the system. They believe that um, system the outcomes are yeah. uh, disparate tr- treatment, and the only way to to demonstrate this is uh, is by providing the data. A couple of years back. Uh, your listeners should Google uh, Florida's broken sentencing laws. And a newspaper down there, some investigative journalists did a great job, and they studied the results of sentences that were coming out in similarly situated uh, cases. And what they found was very disturbing, that people of color uh, were being sentenced to much more severe sentences than um, the white population that was being sentenced for the same types of crimes with similar backgrounds. And that's what sparked their call uh, for, for a data database. And if I could just touch base on the Manafort case one, one more time, you know, that, that case caused a national, uh, a national conversation on why did he get this 47 months when the, when the government was asking the judge to impose 19 years. Right. And so I, I studied that case um, to find out just exactly why. And what I learned was that the the defense lawyers in that particular case, they were armed with the information that our lawyers in the state of Ohio do not currently possess. They had, they were able to say, wait a minute, judge, on the record, before you go and impose this 19-year sentence that the, the, um, that the government is asking for, we want to show you, here's 17 uh, cases, yeah. some of which that are, were your cases that involved defendants that pled to the same thing. Some of these cases about more money being uh, transacted, and this is what you impose. And the sentence were vastly lower than what the government was asking for. And so the judge was forced on the record when when presented with that, uh, he he did not want to treat this defendant. He could not find good reason to to treat this defendant differently than those people were treated. Um, And so I think that's what would occur. Uh, I'm very confident that would, would occur in our system, if we had that uh, trial court judges, you know, you're, you're, when you're issuing a sentence in the state of Ohio, you're often, in my opinion, um, shooting in the dark uh, as to whether your sentence is going to be uh, consistent with similarly situated cases. Unlike uh, uh, the federal system where they have these guidelines that are supposed to uh, promote uniformity between courtroom to courtroom, in the state court, uh, we do not have those type of guidelines. Trial right. court judges are invested with vast uh, discretion and power to to issue sentences. And there's there's some some guidance, you know, based on the level of the the offense, felonies of the first degree and second degree all carry with it a presumption in 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 favor of incarceration. Likewise, the lower level felonies have a presumption uh, that the parties can rebut. Uh, so that, that's some level of guidance. But, you know, uh, in, a, in 
an Ohio court, uh, a, a judge can, uh, in certain situations, impose probation for what the convictions involve, or they can, uh, they can provide decades-long sentencing. We reviewed a case at the Ohio Supreme Court during my first term where the defendant uh, showed up, uh, uh, related cases of 55-year-old woman, um, and she led to what she thought uh, when she was receiving a benefit. She had ha- half her cases dismissed. And um, the trial court judge retained the, the power to give her probation at her sentencing hearing. Uh, and she showed up and the state advocated for 42 years. Uh, the defense advocated for probation and the prosec- and the trial court judge issued a 65-year sentence. Wow. So that's an example of the vast uh, amount of power uh, that that the trial court bench is instilled with, and you know, in order to use that power effectively and um, and in a way that the public expects, I think we need this criminal database yeah. to, to be able to monitor every single sentence, uh, and you're able to meet, make meaningful comparisons between different cases, and and it would allow the advocates to. What they did in the Manafort case uh, on a daily basis is what should be done, and it would pro- it would provide our appellate courts. Oftentimes, um, our appellate court judges in Ohio will uh, receive a case, and they're arguing uh, we we want the sentence reviewed because we don't believe the record supports uh, a sentence as drastic as was issued in this particular case. And our appellate court judges in the state, they told me this directly and through their opinions, they feel like their hands are tied. There's a certain notion that uh, under the laws, appellate courts, while you can review any other aspect of a trial court judge's decision, evidentiary rulings that they made during trial, uh, motions to suppress that they ruled on before the trial went forward. Those are all fair game for our appellate court judges. There's this inherent belief that uh, sentencing is off limits, and they see oftentimes sentences that they believe are totally way out of whack with what, uh, or uh, totally disproportionate to what other people have received. But they feel like they are unable to to address that. And I think our system has to have more guardrails uh, in place in order to address the problem problem of disparate sentencing and disproportionate uh, sentencing. I think it's a real problem and it, on a daily basis, it threatens the public's confidence uh, that, our, that our courts are operating correctly. And I would, I would expect, you know, the, in terms of, for instance, the Manafort example, uh, have the existence or having something like this, it actually would have the, the, the most important effect for the people who can't afford the hundreds of thousands of dollars you know, for to, ha- to get a legal representation where you have, you know, some overtaxed public defender or something like that. Th- those are the folks who aren't going to be able to marshal that sort of evidence and make that case as the, the Paul Manaforts of the world can do. Oh, yeah. The vast majority of, of our, our criminal defendants in the system are indigent and they require appointment of either public defenders and or assigned legal counsel and they, the resources are just not available to, to them to do that and you know I was speaking with a Columbus uh, 
criminal defense attorney who was uh, fortunately retained by a defendant. Same type of example. She was representing someone uh, who was accused of providing heroin that had a deadly dose of uh, fentanyl uh, to a, a friend. Uh, they were both uh, heroin addicted individuals and the friend unfortunately died. So the defendant was charged with involuntary manslaughter. So the defense lawyer who I was speaking with, um, she found out that the state intended to advocate for 13 years at the sentencing hearing. So she engaged in about 25 hours of work over scouring uh, the court's um, uh, records uh, to, to find similarly situated cases in not only that judge's courtroom, but other courtrooms. And she put together a great sentencing memorandum that outlined that uh, the sentences, the sentence that was being advocated for was just way out of proportion to what other people have been sentenced to in similarly situated cases. And uh, it forced the trial court judge to acknowledge this reality. And, and she was able to effectively advocate for a sentence that was much more proportionate to uh, what uh, how other people were treated in our system. And and that that type of transparency, I think, will um, promote public confidence. But I, I've always said that uh, public confidence is diminished when there's a belief among our citizens that the outcome of your criminal case is more, um, more in tune or more in line with which, which judge you are assigned at the arraignment room rather than the rule of law. Right. You know, the the yeah. application that and the, and the requirement that sentences be fair, that they be proportionate uh, and uh, you know, meet those overall fit sentencing factors that are, are um, placed in our law for good reason. Uh, and uh, if, if the public believes that your fate is sealed at your arraignment when you get Judge A or B, Maximum John or Maximum Jane, um, then I, I think public uh, confidence goes way down yeah. in, in our court system. So what, one final question for you. How optimistic are you that these changes that, that we've been talking about, that they will at least to some extent be, be implemented in, in the near-term future? Well, um, I, the fact is um, the tragedy that took place in Minneapolis, um, it, it's, it's unfortunate that that's what had to take place to spark a national conversation. And I don't, I think it goes way beyond people's involvement with belief, the police and, and charging authorities. It goes throughout the entire system. And I think uh, the massive protests that are taking place across uh, the country and the demand for change and the demand for reform has provided what wasn't there before, the, um, the, the power to keep the, the, these issues in the public eye and once and for all implement uh, more transparent measures, um, ways that, are, uh, that will act as a check on the system. Um, and we need this transparency more than ever. You know, um, the press, the watchdog of the uh, elected officials, the fourth estate, uh, they're changing. Uh, you know, when I started my career way back in 2005, we had a beat reporter from the, the daily paper. And, and when they 
we're walking around from courtroom to courtroom to potentially dig up stories. You know, you wanted as a judge, you wanted to be on your best behavior right. uh, because you wanted to be portrayed in a fair uh, manner. That that doesn't exist anymore um, in terms of having beat reporters um, that, that cover. They often cover just only the most salacious of cases. And you'll see that on your nightly news, the one. Um, yeah. But in, as far as real in-depth investigative uh, reporting on on uh, systemic issues, uh, you, you just don't see that anymore. So that, that more than ever, we need a really good, raw data to make decisions. And our legislature needs that. You can't make policy decisions without good information. The whole system you know, runs on good information. When I conducted a sentencing hearing as a trial court judge, I would never go forward on a sentencing unless I received a pre-sentence report that provided me with all the background information I needed to take into consideration that was relevant to that particular individual's sentence. Um, and every good conscientious judge would agree with that on the trial, trial court. We have great judges across the state. And I think most of them, when you think about what we're proposing, I think they think it will be a good thing. It'll be a tool for them to keep themselves in check, keep your own, every every uh, judge on the on the trial court is a human being. Every human being possesses implicit biases and uh, you need a way, you need a tool like what we're advocating for to keep those biases in check and make sure that they don't come out uh, right. in your treatment uh, and in your sentencing decisions. Uh, with the people that come before you. Yeah, a- absolutely. Well, I I certainly hope you're right that this uh, that this will some good specifically this will, will come out of will come out of what's been what's been happening and and I appreciate the efforts that you are making to to try to bring that about and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. It was an honor to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.